line open in front of you. And if you're having trouble finding Nehemiah, just remember the Psalms are about the middle of the Bible, and then you're going to go to the left. Well, I want to ask you, have you ever looked at a sink full of dishes? I mean, full of dishes, overflowing full of dishes. And have you ever wondered as you look at that, how did this happen? Can't we just eat off of the table for the next couple of meals? Maybe you've felt the same way with your laundry hamper. You, you go into the laundry room and you see this place where there's supposed to be a, a laundry basket, but it's just a giant pile of clothes. And, and you might even be tempted to say, we're not wearing clothes for the next few days. We're just going to get caught up on this. Now, I want you to think about what it would be like if you didn't know Jesus as your Savior and your sin has piled up and piled up and piled up like dirty dishes, like dirty clothes, but yet you it's your sin. And so you feel this burden and you don't know what to do with it. It's impossible to do something about it. And it is. That's why Jesus came. So that's what I want us to think about this morning. There's a repeated pattern in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to remember Israel's history with the people in Nehemiah chapter 9. But I want you to know right off the start that we're actually looking at 1,000 years of history. Even more than that if you include creation and Abram. But what we're going to focus on, which I think is the focus of chapter 9, is their history from leaving Egypt up until uh, Nehemiah comes. And that's about 1,000 years right there. And if you think back over that millennium, as we look at their history, they're first going to rehearse what God has done for them. Then they're going to rehearse how they rebelled against God, how they sinned against God. And then they're going to talk about God's mercy to them. So first, I want you to take a look at where their sin has gotten them. This is what I mean about the pile. So go ahead and look at the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, and go ahead and turn to verse 36, and we'll read just verses 36 and 37. They say in verse 36, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Verse 37. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. We are in great distress. Remember, the people were in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And then they had returned to the land. God had kept his promise and brought them back to the land. They had rebuilt the temple, even though it was a small temple. It was a, a valid temple. But then remember, it had been 65 years. We've seen this as we've gone through Nehemiah little bit by little bit. It had been 65 years, and the city was still in ruins. So Nehemiah shows up on the scene. The wall has been rebuilt in a miraculous 52 days. It's been incredible to see what God has done, even with all of the opposition against them. But the problem is the people still need to be rebuilt. 
The temple has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt, but now the people need to be rebuilt. We saw a little bit of that last time in Nehemiah chapter 8. You might want to just flip uh, a page or two back in your Bibles to be reminded of what we saw two weeks ago because we took a week off of Nehemiah last week for annual meeting. And we saw how the people were rebuilt as they read God's law, as they looked into the word and they saw where they had failed God and they began to cry and they were in distress. But then Nehemiah said, stop, we're going to have a party. We are going to think about God's goodness here and then we'll come back and we'll deal with our sin. And so now here we are, the people have done what God told them to do. They've had the Feast of Booths. They've had about 23 days of celebrating, and now they have to deal with their sin. Do you notice how they say in verse 37 to God, we are in great distress. Great distress. Some of you here this morning are in great distress. I don't know exactly. I I know of some situations in people's lives, but I know with a a group of this size that there are some people here this morning who are in great distress. Maybe it's because of relationships in your life or your job or your housing situation or your health or your finances or your relationship with God. And if you're not in distress now, you will be. Aren't you glad you came to church? (laughs) You should be because I want us to see how did God's people deal with their distress. In the world that we live, it's naive to say that if you're having a good season right now, that it's just going to continue that way. And in this world that is so tainted by sin, we all know we go through seasons and waves of, of good times and distress. And so how do we deal with distress. But then we come upon another question, and you can see this if you look again at verse 37. They talk about how God is the one who has put these kings over them that are still ruling over them. Uh, Historians say that the people were paying probably around 40% of their income in taxes to the Persian Empire. So they are in great distress. Not only are they struggling as they try to to reestablish themselves as God's people in the land, but they're also, they feel this burden, this, they have kings over them that are not God's kings. They're, They're not God's people who are free, and they feel this burden. But then notice it says God is the one who's done that. And it says in verse 7, 37, because of our sins. So you might be here this morning thinking, well, That's fine for the rest of these people. You know, Pastor Tim saying, let's learn something here about how to deal with our distress, but that doesn't apply to my distress, you might be saying, because my distress is my own fault. My distress is because of my sin. My distress is because of how I know I have rebelled against God, and it's right for him to put this distress in my life. Well, God has a word for you. I love how John Piper says, don't tell God that he is not allowed to give you good news. Who are we to to tell God, you can't give me good news? 
I have to just sit here in my distress, God. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to take care of our sins. So that's what I want us to come back to at the end of our time today. Go ahead and turn to verse 1. Like I said, we're not going to read every verse in this chapter. I encourage you to do that later on your own. But we're going to see some highlights to get the big idea here. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, it says in verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, so this is right after the people have read the law, Nehemiah chapter 8 had their party celebrating God's goodness. The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So after this big six-hour worship service that we saw in Nehemiah chapter 8, they were weeping. Nehemiah said, pause. That weeping is good because you're seeing your sin, and that means you need to go to God with it. So that's a, a good thing, but let's pause it and remember God's goodness and what he has done among us with rebuilding this wall. They wanted to celebrate what God had done and remember his faithfulness to them. But now they come back to that morning. And in the meantime, what they've been doing is the heads of the household have been coming and meeting with Ezra and probably Nehemiah and the priest. And they've been learning God's law and they've been going back to their families and teaching them what God has to say. And so now the people have been thinking about this. They've been rejoicing, but they've had time to think about not only their sin, but the sin of the nation and where this has gotten them today as a nation. And so they're wearing fast, they're, they're fasting, and they're wearing sackcloth and dirt on their heads. Basically, their outward appearance is showing uh, what their inward feelings are. And we do this sometimes even today. If you think about it, you're not usually going to wear a bright tie to a funeral or a flashy dress to a funeral. And that's the idea here is they're mourning over their sin. The sackcloth would be itchy and would remind them of uh, how sin makes our lives uncomfortable. The, the dirt on their heads would be like them saying, we deserve to be dead. We deserve to be under the ground. You get that picture there? And so they're mourning over their sin. And then verse 2 says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Well, they're separating themselves from the foreigners for at least two reasons. One, what we're going to see here in chapter 9 is they're confessing the sins of the nation of Israel so it doesn't make sense for foreigners to be there confessing those sins with them. Also, there were foreigners that had attached themselves to God's people. And you even see glimpses of this in the book of Nehemiah. The, the people of Israel were supposed to be a light to the nations. And there were believing people like Rahab, for example, to give you an example from centuries before this time, who had decided that this is the true God and I'm going to join myself to God's people through the nation of Israel. But here it seems that what they were doing was symbolically or even purposefully separating themselves from any foreigners who have false gods. And I want you to notice in verse 3, what do they do? 
They go back to God's word. They read God's word for three hours. And then they confess their sins and worship the Lord for three hours. And I want you to notice, this is important, it is reading and hearing God's word, God's law, that brings conviction of sin. The way that we will see our sin, the way that we will be able to deal with our sin in the way that God wants us to, the way we will be able to restore our relationship with God is by reading his word. It's like a mirror that shows us our sin. Of course, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you see the difference there? So don't worry, I'm not going to try to apply this and preach for the next three hours and then have us pray and worship for the next three hours after that. But I want you to feel and think about how seriously they were taking this. This would be like us staying here until 3.30 this afternoon. They were ready to do business with God. God has allowed them to rebuild these walls, and now the people are ready to be rebuilt as God's people. In verses 4 to 5, what we see is the Levites stand up on certain stairs. There's eight Levites on one side, eight Levites on the other. And then take a look at the end of verse 5. They say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So they start their time of confession by praising God. To praise somebody, of course, uh, we know what praising somebody is. We do this uh, with, with our kids, for example. If they do something well, we praise them for it. It's to speak well of somebody. But I want you to notice, I love how they use this phrase here uh, in verse 5. I want you to notice they say that God is actually exalted above all blessing and praise. They say, look, our praises are speaking well of God cannot even reach to how great God is, but we're going to do it anyway because he's worthy of it. So we're going to do it anyway with the breath that he has put into our lungs. You see what's happening there? And we see that next because then they move on to creation. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Think about how stunning the world is if we take the time to notice it. Leaves that fall on the ground every year that we blow out of our yard into the woods or blow into our neighbor's yard or somehow get rid of them. If you think about those leaves, they're incredible just absolutely incredible. They haven't been as bright this year, I'll admit, but it's incredible to think that that was a living thing that used to be green, and before that, it wasn't there just six months ago, nine months ago, and now it's there, and it's dead on the ground, and then the trees are going to look like they've died, and then they're going to come back to life. It's incredible if we stop and notice it. If you haven't noticed my two younger kids have been losing their baby teeth. All of a sudden, something happened this fall, and their teeth are growing in like crazy, and so the baby teeth are coming out. If you haven't noticed, just ask them to smile at you, and you'll see it. But in those gaps, new teeth are already growing in. God's creation is absolutely 
amazing. And so make sure that you take the time to notice his creation in the world and in space and in humanity. Look at what he has done. They're praising him for that. His creation shows his greatness. And then look at the end of verse 6. I love this. The host of heaven, that means the armies of heaven, worship God for his greatness through creation. And did you know the New Testament tells us that the armies of heaven, the angels of heaven, are watching redemption. They're watching what God's going to do with people's sin. They watched everything that we read about here in Nehemiah chapter 9, and they're watching the church today to see how God saves people through Jesus. And they praise him for it. And so after recognizing God's greatness in creation, they now continue to tell their history. And what I want you to notice as we go through this is how often, if we read the whole thing, uh, you would see the word give. You'll notice that some anyway, even though we're not going to have time to read the whole entire chapter. In some versions, the word give, talking about God giving to his people, is used 16 times. And so what we're going to see as we go through this is basically six cycles of rebellion and mercy, rebellion and mercy, rebellion and mercy. Remember, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We talk a lot more about grace, which is probably fine, but for me, an easy definition of grace is getting uh, something that we don't deserve, a gift that we don't deserve. We see God's grace in here. But then how did they respond when they received his grace? At some point, not long after, they rebelled against God. And then God would give them their, his mercy, which means that he would not give them what they did deserve, and he would continue to show them grace. You can see how those flow together. So to make it simple, uh, I'm, I basically am putting this into six cycles as we look at Nehemiah 9, just briefly. Six cycles of rebellion and then mercy. So if you're taking notes, you could just write down rebellion and mercy. If you're a writer in your Bible, some people are, uh, you could write in the margin. You could write an R for rebellion, and you could write an M for mercy next to these verses. So first, I want you to notice the first cycle, cycle one, in verse 16. Verse 16, and what's happened so far in verses 9 to 15 is he's talked about how God saved the Israelites from Egypt and made them a great nation. And then we see their rebellion. So take a look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Now, stiffen their neck sometimes i've wondered what is what does that mean you know you can kind of get the idea of a person who's stubborn stiffening their neck but it seems that what it's talking about is the way that a cow they would have been familiar with this the way that a cow stiffens its neck when it doesn't want to move and doesn't want to go somewhere and there's no way that you can move that cow because it's a giant cow and it's just going to stay where it is and so you get the idea that, that they're comparing themselves as they talk about themselves here and as they pray to God about their history as being people with stiff necks. 
And one reason that this imagery, kind of similar to a stubborn cow, might be used is because in the, the next verses, if you take a look at verse 17, they're about ready to talk about how they worship the golden calf. And one of the principles that we see in Scripture is that we become like what we worship. So it could be that's why they're using this language. But what they're saying is, look, if you look at verses 9 to 15 in your Bibles, they're talking about how God brought them out of Egypt. God not only brought them out of Egypt, he made them a nation. He didn't, he didn't just put them into the wilderness. He gave them a pillar of cloud to guide them by day, a visible pillar of cloud. He gave them a, a pillar of fire by night. He gave them food that fell out of heaven. Are you kidding me? They didn't have any water. Guess where the water came from? A rock. And so then you get to verse 16 and you just think, wow, how could they do this? And then we think about ourselves. Does it sound a little bit familiar? It's so easy to complain and it's so hard sometimes to be thankful. And so we see first this rebellion, and then next we see mercy. Take a look at the end of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So cycle one, starting in verse 16, rebellion, into verse 17, mercy. Cycle two, we see rebellion again. Take a look at verse 18. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. So we see rebellion again. Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God and the people are down here creating an idol and actually saying that this idol is the one who brought them out of Egypt. Crazy. God's response Verse 19, the end of verse 19, mercy. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. And then look down at verse 21. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So starting in verse 18, you see cycle two, rebellion. And then starting in verse 19 down to 21, you see mercy. God's mercy. And what we're going to see over and over four more times is the people's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness. Cycle three, God gives them the land he's promised. He gets rid of their enemies. He gives them houses. He gives them cisterns, which means they had water systems. He gives them vineyards, olive trees, fruit trees that were already there for them. And they delight in this goodness. Did you notice in the scripture reading, it says that they were fat? That means in the Old Testament, that means that they had more than they needed. It meant it was a sign of being rich in that culture. God had just lavished them with his goodness and his grace. And then what do we see in verse 26? Rebellion. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. So instead of 
getting to know God through the prophets, they try to kill the prophets. Many of them said uh, if they didn't kill them, they would say, don't give us that prophecy from God. Speak to us smooth things. Tell us what we want to hear. Do you remember that part of the Old Testament? The true prophet of God says, no way. I've, I've seen what happens to false prophets. Verse 27, rebellion, then mercy. Verse 27, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Three cycles. Let's briefly look at three more. Verse 28, rebellion. After they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Mercy, look at the end of verse 28. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. This is the history of the book of Judges. Just to give you one example, judgment because of their sin. They cry out to God and he gives them mercy. He gives them saviors. He gives them judges who give them rest for a while. So verse 28, just in that one verse, we see cycle four, rebellion and mercy. Cycle five, look at verse 29, the end of verse 29. Yet they acted presumptuously, rebellion, and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. And then mercy, verse 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. And then last, cycle six. Let's look at this one more time because you need to feel the weight of this. Remember, we're thinking about how do I deal with a massive pile of sin? That's what the people are dealing with. Into verse 30, rebellion, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And then verse 31, mercy. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So we've seen six times, rebellion, mercy, Rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy. Six times as they look at just this 1,000 years of their history, and if they had looked even deeper, they would have found even more cycles of that. So what is their response? Take a look at verse 33. What should your response be if you look back at your life? And you see a pile of sin, and you don't know what to do with it. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. This is the heart behind all true confession. Do you see what they say in verse 33? They're not making excuses for their sin. They're not making excuses even though their forefathers have done this sin. They're actually confessing their sin and their own personal sin. They're not shaking their fist at God and saying, why have you judged me? Why have you treated me like a child who a father or mother loves? 
I think there's that realization that God disciplines those that he loves. There's only you are righteous. We are sinners. Please have mercy on us. This is how people are saved. When they finally come to a realization that they deserve God's judgment because of their sin, which has separated them from God, and they say, you are righteous, God, and I deserve judgment. I'm a sinner, but I also know, God, you are a savior. Will you save me? That's how we're saved. It's also how revival happens when God's people stop making excuses and and get right with God. So what's going to happen to the Israelites? This is how the Old Testament ends. Do you remember that? Nehemiah is the end of the history of the Old Testament. Now, they make a covenant with him. If you look at verse 36, they make a covenant to keep the covenant that God has already given. So they're trying. I think God wants to honor that. You see an honest try here, but it's sad. If you think I'm being harsh, just take a look at chapter 13. That's probably where we'll land next week. We'll do a little review of the chapters in between and then finish Nehemiah, Lord willing, next Sunday in Nehemiah chapter 13. I'll just tell you now, if you don't make it here next Sunday, they don't do it. Just 13 years later, Nehemiah comes back and things are a mess. They don't keep the covenant. So is it time for cycle seven now? Do do they think they're going to do better than 1,000 years of others before them in history, which is the history that they've just repeated? Here's what they needed. They needed new hearts. They needed someone to come and destroy sin. They needed someone to come and finally pay the penalty for sin that separates sinners from God. They needed the new covenant that's prophesied in the old covenant, the covenant that will be written on their hearts. They need the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer rather than coming upon some believers for a special purpose like what would happen in the Old Testament. They needed the Holy Spirit in them, all of them, They needed to know that all is right between them and God because a one-time sacrifice took care of what all those sacrifices over all those years pointed to. They need the final work of one high priest whose work is done rather than the priest standing daily in the temple whose work is never done. They need the serpent crusher promised in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. They need the Redeemer that's promised in the Old Testament. They need the Messiah that was promised. They need Jesus. We need Jesus. Turn to 1 John 1. We're going to close with this. It's right near the end of your Bibles. If you get to Revelation, just go a little bit to the left. 1 John Chapter 1, what do you do with a pile of sin? You give it to Jesus. This is how God would ultimately deal with their sin when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was pain for all of those who put faith in God to truly forgive sin before. When Jesus died on the cross, it's the same way for us, except they were looking ahead. We are looking back 
to our sins being placed on him on the cross. And here's what you need. Go ahead, and it's, it's up there. Thank you. What do you do with a pile of sin? You either need to confess your sins to meet Jesus for the first time to be saved. You either need to come to him and to know him for the very first time. Or number two, you need to come to him to keep your relationship with him fresh. Sometimes we struggle with confession as believers because we know that our sin is paid for because I know Jesus, I'm trusting in him. But we need to keep our relationship fresh. It's a relationship. So this is for all of us, whether you need to meet Jesus for the first time, believe in him alone for your salvation from your sin, for your eternity to trust in him to save you, or whether you're already doing that, but maybe there's sins that you haven't confessed to him, then you need to do that to keep your relationship with him fresh. Take a look at 1 John 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he gives us a problem and a solution here. The problem is we have darkness. And the problem is that the darkness that he's talking about in verses 5 to 9 is not just that we've committed sinful deeds, it's that we are sinners. It's, that it's in the fabric of who we are. It has been ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This has been a problem. It means we can't have fellowship with him without forgiveness. Do you notice how he talks about fellowship with one another? We need forgiveness. And the way that forgiveness comes is through Jesus. So the solution, he gives this at the end of verse 7, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 that I just read, is we need to confess our sins. That means to just tell God what it is, to agree with him, and then to embrace Christ and his forgiveness, and to look only to him to bring us to God, to make us right with God. And then we have two beautiful verses that explain this even more next, verse 8. 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, catch this, you have a pile of sin. The people had a pile of sin. They needed someone who would come and take it away. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we began our time in God's word today thinking about a sink full of dishes that is just overwhelming, a hamper of dirty clothes that is just overwhelming. And if you are overwhelmed under such a greater burden, feeling like you can't come to God because of your sin, then that might be exactly where God wants you right now. Because if you're feeling that like these people in Nehemiah 9 were feeling it, we have the solution. We have the Savior. Jesus comes when we can't do anything. And when we confess our sin to him, he has come and he will pulverize our sin. He'll wipe it out. He completely takes it away. He takes away the consequences. He takes away the penalty. 
He takes away the power of it so that we don't have to be slaves to it anymore. We can begin to grow and overcome sin. And he takes us away from sin's presence. He will take us into heaven one day if we're trusting in him. So I beg you, either come to Jesus today for the first time to know him as your savior. Give your sin to him. Receive his salvation. Or if you have sins in your life and you're already trusting in him, go to him. Do what 1 John 1, 9 says. Confess it to him today and receive his forgiveness. Get rid of that pile. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you give us the solution in your word. You don't leave us despondent. Your people were despondent. They said, we are in great distress. For any here today, Lord, who are in great distress because of sin in their life, I pray that you would show them what a great Savior you are. Show us Jesus. Show us how he took care of all of our sin on the cross and rose from the dead so that we can be united with him, so that we can have a relationship with you now and the sure hope of heaven when we die or when you come again. There's nothing greater, Lord. Would you take away burdens today? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you close us?